The reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did, also, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where, there is, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signed and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Lindsay. Uh, in my house growing up, uh, there was always neighborhood kids coming in and out and playing and hanging out. And, and I can remember there being a few times where uh, my mom would come into to a room and we were in there playing video games or something. And, and she would say, uh, honey, come here. We need to talk. And then I'd come over and she said, I, I need your friend to go home. Well, we need to talk about a few things. And I'd be like, what do you mean? Why can't he just stay here? Why, why, can't, why does he have to leave? Why, why can't we just talk real quick and I can keep playing? And then beginning to realize, oh, maybe my sister's told on me that I body slammed them a little bit ago or pulled their hair or something. And so I'd have to go and, you know, tell them to leave. And I'm like, Mom, why, why did that have to happen? She said, because we, we need to have a discussion and this is a family matter. Uh, and, and they don't need to be here for that. In many ways, when we look at the book of 1 Corinthians... Uh, Paul is writing a letter to the church uh, because they got some problems. 
they got some some messiness, some things to deal with, and uh, they, they they've really got some some family matters to discuss, some church matters uh, to discuss, and and so over the next few weeks, as we begin to walk through the book of First Corinthians together, uh, we're going to really kind of just tackle kind of problem or issue after issue after issue as Paul is addressing them, and, and my hope is that they will find some relevance to us today. You know, we just we just did this series uh, about our church covenant, right, and that membership matters, uh, but now we want to talk about how the matters in the church uh, and what's going on. I want to think through those things and, 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 and get in front of some problems as Paul has addressed them here in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. Now, a little background, a little history real quick. The city of Corinth uh, was a hopping place. I mean, like, it was lively. Things were going on. Uh, it was right in the middle of ancient Greece. Uh, like literally right smack dab in the middle. So if you were traveling uh, to, from, from the north to the south or from the south to the north, uh, you were going through Corinth. Uh, Corinth was also a port city. Uh, and so if you were moving goods, uh, trying to get things out to the ocean, uh, if you were trying to travel far and you could do that by sea, you were going to Corinth because it was a port city. And so everyone was there. But now, a hundred years before this letter was written, uh, the book, uh, Corinth was, uh, was uh, captured by the Romans, uh, burnt to the ground, uh, and was rebuilt uh, in the image of Roman society. And so now that a hundred years has passed, the people that live there are Romans to the core and uh, love and, and cherish their Ro- Roman culture. Now, one of the things that the Greeks and now the Romans admired and loved uh, was wisdom. They loved wisdom. It was from them that we have, you know, Socrates, Socrates. That was a joke some of y'all got. Uh, Where we got Plato and Aristotle and all of these different philosophers because they would travel around uh, teaching these different philosophies, these different worldviews, these different ideas, and most often they would find themselves in Corinth for a while. And people would come into Corinth. They would be in the, you know, today our city square is really uh, social media. It's where we all kind of come together and debate ideas. Uh, But back then there literally was a city square where people just came to debate ideas. And they would sit around and they would talk and these guys would come present these philosophies and these ideas. And everyone would come and listen and they would want to hear who was in town and who was the most eloquent speaker and who was the most persuasive, but also in this kind of a bustling city was, uh, was that it was growing, was a lot of political things going on, uh, there was a lot of uh, temples to different gods, uh, it was a city dominated by wealth, power, influence, and sexual promiscuity. In many ways, it was the New York City of today. Um. And I can say that because a pastor in New York City says that about it. So I feel okay saying that. In this very pagan, very lost, very secular city, Paul plants a church. He plants a church and now five years later is writing to them in what is actually his second letter to them. We call it 1 Corinthians, but it's actually the second letter he's written to them. Uh, 1 Corinthians, not the first letter. We know this because later in the letter he kind of refers back to his previous letters that he sent addressing them. Um, but here in what we call 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to address concerns 
uh, as he has heard from Chloe's people. I don't know who Chloe is, but snitches get stitches, Chloe, and she was a t- this person was a tattletale. But now Paul knows, and so he's got to address some things. <laughs> and so the, uh, the first concern he addresses, and that we're only going to touch on a little bit, because he kind of brings it back up later, and we're going to pick it back up in a few weeks, uh, are divisions in the church. That there are these divisions in the church. He says, some of y'all say, I follow Paul. Or I follow Apollos. We follow Peter or Cephas. And some of you say, I follow Christ. And he rebukes all of them, uh, uh, saying that, listen, there should be no division among you. Uh, Like the city, they were inundated with public speaking and and people trying to persuade other people about these new philosophies. You have the Stoics making a big deal, the Gnostics making a big deal, all these different things. And... And they're bringing these different worldly ideas. Well, in the church, they thought that in the same way that the city was, you know, vying for who was the best philosopher and who, who was the best speaker and all these things, that inside the church they kind of needed to do the same thing, right? Who embodied uh, the best thinking of Christianity? Who was the best leader, the best advocate, the best person who embodied what they envisioned Christianity to be and was the most likely to be able to advance it and move it forward in the city of Corinth? Hey, if, if, if in the secular world we've got these great philosophers, then if someone's going to go out and preach Christ, they've got they to rival them, those people and how persuasive and how eloquent and how good, good they are. And so some of the guys, they liked Paul, right? Uh, maybe because he was the one that planted the church and they're like, they, they were faithful to the first guy, right? Uh, maybe because he was an apostle. Maybe because he had some, some sway in the movement. We don't really know, but maybe that's why. Some of the guys liked Apollos, probably because Apollos was the most academically trained and was like really sophisticated and really smart. And so some of the guys were like, hey, we need to be behind this guy. And then some of the guys liked Peter or Cephas, same guy. Maybe because uh, of his Jewish background, maybe they were Jews in Corinth, or maybe they tended to like want to kind of go back to observing the Old Testament laws, and so they're like, hey, we need to get on Peter. He was like with Jesus. He's the guy. And some of the guys were like those guys. You know, they're like, yeah, 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 well, we follow Christ, you know. And, and, and that's not the right answer. It seems like it's the right answer, but it's not. Because Paul doesn't commend them for that. He rebukes them for that, right? Because because they're saying like oh yeah you know you you've met those guys like uh, before where you know they've got some obscure uh, interpretation of the Bible and they're like this is the way this is the only way and if you don't believe this you're not faithful to the scriptures right and so they're making no room for disagreement they're like we're the purest of the pure and Paul's like guys y'all got to get it together he said the the church is divided over their guy their leader. And the way that they think the church is going to move forward, going to thrive, going to grow. And Paul rebukes them saying, guys, y'all have missed the point. The point is not about one leader over another or his gifting over this gifting or this methodology over that methodology. It's not how the gospel advances. I understand that there are these great speakers and philosophers here in Corinth, but the gospel is not going to advance because we've got a better speaker. You've for actually forgotten how the gospel works. And just like them, some 2,000 years ago, I think we can fall into the same traps. That we can be deceived by the same, as he's going to talk about in the text, human wisdom, human logic, and forget that God does things differently. And I think we can fall into this same trap. You know, I'll give you some examples. My whole life, 
I have uh, seen this debate and, and been a part of this debate as a younger, more foolish version of myself, uh, where there was this debate between an older and a younger generation. Uh, you know, the, the older generation saying, man, if we're going to reach people, we've got we to get the choir back. We've got to put the robes back on. We've got to sing the old songs in the old way. We've got to get rid of those drums, and we've got to bring the organ back. And if we get a preacher in a suit, I'm sorry, if we get a preacher in a suit, then we'll reach people. Right? And, th- and then they really believed that. But on the other side, they said, man, if we could just get some rocking music and some louder music and some, like, moving lights and fog machines and, like, maybe play Highway to Hell or some other secular songs, like, then we'll be really cool and then people will want to come and believe in Jesus because we'll be really cool and they'll, they'll want to be a part of it. <laughs> we might not be saying, I'm with Paul or I'm Apollos, but sometimes we're saying, I'm with the younger crowd or I'm with the older crowd. But that's not the division uh, we, we've necessarily seen. We, well, we've seen this division over the past decade or so. But that's not the only division we have. Think about the divisions over the right and the left. Sometimes we say, man, we've just got to, the church has got to be more inclusive. You know, we've got to be more inclusive. We've got to be more accepting. We've got to just let everybody come in and, and be whatever they want to be and however they feel. And, and it doesn't matter. Uh, we need to be inclusive of the LGBTQ agenda. And we need to be affirming. And, and if we're not, we're going to be on the wrong side of history. While on the other side we say, man, we just need to have more American flags and sing more patriotic songs and we need to pass out voter guides during the service and we got to win our nation back. And we might not say, I'm with Paul or I'm with Apollos, but we say, man, I'm on the right or I'm on the left. The divisions can go on and on. Another reason we need a clear doctrinal statement, clear um, uh, church covenant, clearly articulating who we are, what our values are, what our mission is. The divisions can be smaller than those, right? They can be smaller than those examples. They can be as simple as, well, I think the best way to reach people and decide people is to go do this thing or to go do that thing or to take this mission trip or to have that event or to have this type of Bible study, to have this sort of social media platform, to do this or that. And we can divide over strategy and the best way to do that. And so Paul responds to these types of divisions and the same divisions that the, not just our church, but the church in America has today. And he responds to these divisions on, on, on their fundamental lack of understanding of the gospel. He does not respond with some practical word like, hey, guys, let's get together and sit down and kind of work out our disagreements and see if we can't come to some sort of compromise. He doesn't respond in some sort of practical way. He responds not with a practical word but a theological word. He responds by saying, the reason you are divided over these leaders and these methods and these ideas and these speakers is because you fundamentally misunderstand the gospel and how the gospel advances. And in 2023, we need to have a very clear understanding of the gospel and how the gospel advances, or we will very easily fall into the same traps with new rapping. Guys, the wonderful truth is that our church has been growing. Our church has been growing since we've come out of the pandemic. Uh, We've got lots of new families. That's exciting. We're reaching people. We're discipling people. We're making a difference for the kingdom of Christ. But as we grow, we have to be careful. Because we cannot be a church that says that we must do anything to grow. We must grow at any cost and by any means. If we do that, we will sacrifice the truth for the sake of growth. We will lose the very message that can save people in order to get people in the doors. And in reaching them, we will have reached them with a gospel that is actually no gospel at all. 
We need to heed Paul's instruction here to understand the nature of the gospel and how it grows. So here's the answer. I'm going to give you the full answer, and then we're going to break it down. So uh, I did your worship guide differently. I just gave you places to take notes, so write this down. The gospel does not advance according to human wisdom. The message is strange. The followers are insignificant, and the teachers are unimpressive. It advances by the power of God alone. All right, leave that up for a minute. Y'all write that down. The gospel does not advance according to human wisdom, according to our cunning. The message is strange. The followers are insignificant. The teachers are unimpressive. It advances by the power of God alone. And this is nothing new, right? God's plans have always confounded human wisdom. Just think about it. Think about the Old Testament. Human wisdom says... If you want to send a guy to confront the Pharaoh to let your people go out of slavery and release them, well, you think, okay, let's get the smartest, most well-spoken negotiator we can find. And God says, okay, here's a murdering, runaway, Jewish adopted son of the Pharaoh who's probably pretty mad at, who also, by the way, has a speech impediment. Send that guy. Go. And what does he do? He accomplishes the plans of God. He saves his people from slavery. It works. Human wisdom says, if you want to take out a city that's been impenetrable, you probably should sneak in at night. Sneak in past the walls and take them out from the inside. But what does God do? He says, hey, I want you guys to march around the city seven times, shouting and blowing trumpets and making a big noise, letting them know you're here to invade them, and then we'll take them out. And what does God do? He knocks the walls down and they win. Human wisdom says if you want to take out a giant, you send the fierce warrior with armor and a sword. But what does God do? Hey, here's a kid with no armor and a slingshot. And it works. Human wisdom may tell you that this or that will work. This or that is how we reach people, how we get people saved, how we disciple people. But we should have learned a long, long time ago to forsake human wisdom and just do what God tells us to do. It's really simple. And so here's Paul's response to the division to understand the nature of the gospel and how it spreads. First, the message is strange. The message is strange. Throughout chapter 1 and 2, you get this comparison again and again to the difference between human wisdom and the wisdom of God. For example, in verse 20, he says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly, through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who who believe. I want you to slow down and hear that last part. It pleases God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. God saves people through preaching, which doesn't just mean what I'm doing up here. It means that anytime you share the gospel, that's preaching the gospel, right? Anytime you share the gospel with anyone, you can be sitting at a coffee shop, share the gospel, that's preaching the gospel. God saves people through the sharing of a message that comes across as foolish and silly, and yet God uses it to save people. Well, what is so strange about this message? Let's understand what this message is and why it's so weird and strange. We believe... That all of us are born sinful and corrupted from the moment of conception. We are alienated from God, cut off from God. We are by nature children of wrath. We are guilty of sin and rightfully deserve the punishment and condemnation of a good and holy God whom we have wronged. 
but God in his love for us became a human. God who lives in some heavenly realm and some other plane of existence becomes a human and enters human, or human history. While also maintaining his divinity, his godhood, while and also living a perfect life as a human. Literally never sinned, not once. And then he was willingly a part of a plan to be executed by the Romans for a crime, uh, by the Romans for a crime he did not commit. And while the Jews and the devil were celebrating, thinking they had won, God was actually sacrificing his son as the perfect Passover lamb, putting the sins of the world on Christ so that he could become our scapegoat, taking our sin, our guilt, and our shame, receiving in our place the justice of God. And then three days later, his rotting corpse reanimates and he is resurrected from the dead. And he hung out for about 40 days teaching his disciples, and then he flies off back up into heaven, which we wait because one day he's going to return on a white horse to judge the living and the dead and fix the whole world. Sounds normal, right? Sounds sane, right? Sounds like everybody's just going to accept that. No, it's weird. It's strange. We believe a dead dude came back to life. We believe a dude was 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 brutally executed on a cross, and somehow that God used that to forgive us of our sins. It is strange. It is out of this world. It sounds like a fairy tale. It just happens to have the fortunate reality to actually also be true. But it sounds crazy. See, the message of the gospel is weird. And it is not our job to make it unweird. And it's not our job to change it or update it. It is our job to simply share it. And what happens when we share this weird, strange message of a gospel? Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. You see, the Greeks or the Romans, they were looking for some profound human philosopher, the likes of Plato and Aristotle. They were looking for one of these public speakers coming through uh, to knock their sock off, socks off with some new enlightenment, some new way of thinking or living. They were not looking for a murdered Jew come back to life. And so what was their reaction when, when people said, hey, your only hope in life and death is to believe in a Jew who you guys have taken over and you control their country. But this Jew was dead, he was resurrected, and he's your only hope. <laughs> okay. We are the Roman army. No one can defeat us. Flash forward a few years, they get defeated. But we think we're really great. We're not going to believe in some dead Jew come back to life. And so what did they do? They mocked them. They were literally what, what accounts to like ancient newspaper cartoons making fun of Jesus. There's, a, there's one of Jesus hanging on the cross with a donkey head making fun of him. They thought it was hilarious that people would believe this. But then the Jews, the Jews were looking for signs and wonders. I mean, it's not like Jesus didn't raise the dead himself and walk on water and heal people and all these kinds of crazy things. But, but they were looking for signs and wonders. They're looking for something supernatural. They wanted, a, they wanted a Messiah who would come and raise an army to kill pagans, not a Messiah who would come to be killed by the pagans. And they are literally offended, aghast, clutching their pearls by the idea that Jesus could possibly be their Messiah that they had waited for. It is a ludicrous, offensive idea to them. We're waiting for a king and an army, not some dead Jew. And today is no different. When we share the strange message of the gospel, the world finds it foolish. 
Some are offended by it because it's so old-fashioned, it's so out of date in their mind. They don't think that, that right or wrong exists. And so to try to tell them that they're sinners breaking God's law, they're, they're, they're offended by that. Who are you to tell me that? Who, who are you to have the audacity to tell me that my lifestyle and my choices are wrong? Who are you to tell me that I, I can't live this way? Others are offended because they think themselves so good. And I want you to hear this because this might be some of us. We follow the rules. We do the right things. We love the idea of Christianity. We even like repentance and confession. But the idea that I might have to repent, not just of my failures, but even my good works, because they ain't good enough. And the best works you have are tainted by bad motivations and sin. And your righteousness could never come from you. It has to come from Jesus. And so the idea that not only do I make a few mistakes, but even my best things fall way short is offensive to some. Others are put off because we are talking about a God that needs wrath appeased through sacrifice. And they think that's silly. I mean, we're talking about what ancient people did with ancient gods. And we're so much smarter now. We're so much more technologically and scientifically advanced that we know that we don't appease gods through sacrifice. And so what have churches tried to do? Churches, in an effort to want to reach people, we, we've said, okay, we, we, we don't want to talk too much about sin because we don't want to offend people by talking about the things they do wrong because if we talk about sin, they won't come back. And if we talk about the need for sacrifice and blood and the substitutionary death and the anger and the righteous wrath of God, then people are just going to think we're some church that preaches fire and brimstone and they're not going to come back. And so let's just talk about the love. Let's just talk about love. And how God is love, let's just live there and hopefully they'll get it. But if we remove the offense of the gospel, because we think we're so wise, in order to reach people, we might get them in our doors. But we've lost the only message that has any power to save them. And so we'll have a church full of people with first class tickets to hell. There's a book that came out some years ago called Christless Christianity, and in the opening illustration that the author gives, he, he says, what would it look like if the devil had his way in the world? A lot of us would picture uh, bars and strip clubs and drugs on the streets and violence and just chaos erupting. But he says, I don't think that's what it would look like. I think if the devil had his way in the world, there would be no bars and no strip clubs and no chaos and no drugs. There would be a church on every street corner, and everyone would be in attendance every time the doors were opened. But Christ would not be preached. It would be a moralistic gospel. Hey, let's go be good people. Because the devil wants you just close enough to feel safe. But not go so far as to actually think you need Jesus. You see, when church attendance numbers matter more than making genuine disciples, you will abandon the gospel. And that is a temptation for every church that wants or is growing. Because you want more growth and more growth. And if you think, man, we got to get these people in here, eventually, you won't abandon the gospel in name, but you will abandon it in content. See, the message of the gospel is offensive. It always has been. It always will be. Now, we have to be careful that we are not the offensive ones. We're not called to be offensive. We are called to remove barriers, to build bridges, but all in an effort to get people to see the gospel and not all the distractions, not all of the peripheral things. We want people to see the gospel 
as it is. Not change the message, not remove things to prevent people from seeing it, but remove things to get people to it. To take away the distractions. The gospel always causes one of two responses in people. Every time. The gospel either softens people, or they move closer to belief, or the gospel hardens people as they they run away from it. If the gospel is the only medicine, it is the only antidote that will cure us of our great ailment of sin. But we know that people are going to see it and think that the medicine tastes bad. And they're not going to want to drink it. Our job is not to, to mix it. Y'all, y'all remember growing up, there was like this pink medicine, like liquid medicine, that uh, amoxicillin maybe? I don't know. But it tastes awesome. Like I remember being in the fridge and be like, can I just get a little swig of that? Because it's just like candy. It's like sweet. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Okay. Well, it's, not, it's, like, it's like if the gospel is this, this medicine that we need to take, sometimes the temptation is let's just mix a little bit of that pink stuff in here. You know, swirl it together. Then maybe people can get it down. Maybe then they can swallow it. But our job is not to mix in our wisdom so that it doesn't look so offensive or difficult to accept. Our job is to see, to tell people, I know you think this is hard. I know you're struggling. But this medicine will save your life and change you forever. And you will find that after you drink it, even though it looks maybe like it's going to taste bad, you'll find that it tastes amazing, better than that pink stuff. The first thing we need to understand is that the gospel is strange. And we don't change the message. We just deliver it. 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the strong, uh, what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. The second thing I want you to see is that not only is the gospel strange, but the followers of this gospel are insignificant. The followers of this gospel are insignificant. The gospel has always flourished among the unimpressive. That doesn't mean rich people or famous people haven't or won't come to Christ. It just means that oftentimes success and fame and riches and nobility create a barrier and make it sometimes harder for those people to humble themselves enough to come to Christ. You see, the gospel flourishes, has always flourished among the poor, among the downtrodden, among the weak, among those who know they're bad and know they need help, who know they're sick and know they need a doctor. I was helping a church plant in New Orleans for some years, uh, a few years back, and they were planning this church in New Orleans and uh, trying to reach people. I mean, this church was out and about, out with people all the time, sharing the gospel, very evangelistic, very out there. Uh, and, man, they would, they would get, like, every, they'd work on one person for eight months, and finally they'd come. And, like, it was a very slow conversion. And then they found this neighborhood. This is a low-income, uh, really struggling uh, neighborhood. Uh, and they went there, and they began to invest in that neighborhood and, and, and do things with the kids and then meet the families and all this. And they just all started coming. Like the church doubled overnight with all of these people who were a wreck and knew they needed help, knew they needed something more than what they had. And they were coming to Christ, and their lives were changing. They needed love and care. They needed something that only Jesus could provide that their life was missing. You see, the problem is impressive people often do not realize the massive hole in their heart and lives because they're just filling it with other things. 
We see the gospel is not spreading because its followers are so popular. You know, Deion Sanders is the most recent probably celebrity type person to kind of blow up because they're talking about uh, Jesus, right? Uh, and, and right now everyone is talking about Deion Sanders, Coach Prime and, 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 and Colorado University and, and how good of a job he's doing, how he's honoring Jesus, talking about Jesus and all this. But two things to think about. If, one, if they were losing, which they did lose the other night pretty bad, but if they were losing, ain't nobody talking about him. And two, people are not going to all of a sudden start taking Jesus seriously because Coach Deion Sanders is. And, but people do not change their whole lives, change their allegiance, change their hearts, transform because someone cool in their mind all of a sudden became a Christian. We always think it will work that way, but it never does. And the problem is it's not a matter of how many times we have seen this fail again and again because we have. We have seen uh, human wisdom take over and churches pr- uh, pay to bring some celebrity in, right? Hey, we're going to bring in the duck commander, right? And we're going to bring in some athlete. We're going to bring in some actor, and they're going to talk about how their life was transformed by Jesus, and all these people are going to get saved, but it never works. Do you know who really loves the fact that Coach Prime is a Christian? Christians love it. Christians love it. You know who doesn't care? Everyone else. They don't care. We think it's cool, but no one else cares. Christians are weird. Y'all are weird. You believe a dead dude came back to life, and he's coming back on a white horse in the clouds. You're weird, and you're unimpressive. But yet it is these unimpressive weird people that God in his wisdom has said, Y'all unimpressive people, go share my gospel and we'll change the world. Because it is not about the messenger. It's about the message. It is never the messenger that changes people's lives. We're just the middleman. And this is really practical application, I think, for churches. We do not platform people. Tell you or, uh, or, or tell outsiders to go listen to people just because they are popular or famous or wealthy. We platform people, tell you to go listen to people, not because of who they are, because of the, but because of the one to whom they point. Jesus Christ, a bloody cross and an empty grave. We are unimpressive which is in the wisdom of God for how he's going to change the world. Now, look at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The last thing, third thing I want you to see is that the teachers are also unimpressive. The teachers are unimpressive. 
the way Paul comes sharing the gospel with the Corinthians was in direct contrast to how all those Roman philosophers had come into the town sharing their ideas. Those guys came into town, they were confident, they were eloquent, they were persuasive, they were crafty. I think about today how we see advertisements, right? We see ads all the time. And every ad you see is trying to persuade you to buy some product. And it draws you in. And it plays on your emotions. And it convinces you that you need that thing. Guys, uh, when I, I'm, I'm, a few years ago, I was early married. And I'm going to Sam's Club to buy some food for a cookout we're having at church. And as I'm walking around, I know there's a crowd of people. So I kind of go, over there, well, what's, what's going on? And there's this guy, and he's showing off these knives. And I mean, he takes this knife and he's like slicing these tomatoes. I don't even like tomatoes, but he's slicing these tomatoes like like you can, they're translucent. You can see through them, right? And, and, and then he's 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 taking it and banging a hammer on it, and then he's like grinding the knives over like rocks and stuff, and showing how they're still sharp and how fast you can cut and a lifetime warranty and all these things. And I'm just watching this, and he talks about we can have them today for only forty nine ninety nine, and I'm like sold. And I left $50 poor because I brought them knives home. Pumped them and showed my wife, you will not believe these knives I got, honey. Check these things out. Don't cut it. Don't cut this tomato. So I don't even like tomatoes. I don't know why it matters. Right? And, and all these things. And, and I show it to her, and she just looks at me like, what in the world are you doing? We have a whole knife set. We just got married. People just gave us all this stuff. We don't need any knives. So we gifted it into my parents for Christmas. <laughs> but the best part is that that Thanksgiving, we were at her family's, and I was kind of making fun of myself, telling this story, talking about how I bought these knives, and they persuaded, convinced me that I needed them at Sam's Coming, all this stuff. And her dad said, me too! I got them too! And he went to the drawer and pulled them out. He said, aren't they awesome? I'm like, I know they don't get it. But the point is that people can be persuasive. Man, those Facebook ads that sell stuff, sometimes I'm just like, man, I kind of want that thing. And they can persuade us and trick us into something, it's something we need that we don't need. I can be manipulated, you can be manipulated, and we can manipulate the gospel too. We can have VBS, and I could get all the kids to come forward and tell them about how awful hell is and how hot it is. And I could tell them about how great heaven's going to be. i say, okay, everyone raise your hand if you want to get saved. And they'd all raise their hand. I'd say, y'all pray this prayer. And we could every VBS say, we had 100 kids saved. I could do that every year. Youth ministry is often a full-time job of helping students diagnose whether or not their childhood conversion was real. And you can go to youth camps or revival services or Christian concerts where they're going to talk in some loud, passionate voice about how if you leave here tonight and get in a car crash on your way home and you die, where are you going to go? And then they bring it down and do you know if you're going to go to heaven? And they play soft music. And sometimes they'll have people in the crowd who are just there planted to get up and to go forward. So we go, oh, other people are going, I can go too. To kind of manipulate you to be able to go forward. And then they stop the music and they say, I know there's someone else here. There's someone else here who's not come yet. We're going to play one more verse of this song. You come on down. Pulling on heartstrings, manipulating, trying and begging and pleading, trying to get these people to come. And look, I'm not judging their motives or their hearts. That's not for me to do. But Paul makes it clear. He didn't come with persuasive or manipulative speech. He didn't come with cunning. 
He says he was a nervous wreck. His knees are shaking. He's timid. He comes with ineloquent speech to talk about one thing, the cross of Christ. He said, I know nothing but the cross. And what happened? All these Corinthians believed. They were saved. They built a church. They trusted Christ, not through emotional manipulation or persuasive speech, but through the power of God and a strange message about a bloody cross and an empty tomb. Guys, this is great news for you and me because that means it's not our job to go out. We don't have the power within us to go out and share a gospel. And if we're good enough, we'll get them saved. And if we kind of aren't good enough, then their blood's on our hands. That's not the case. But we can go with trembling voices and, and knocking knees and with words that are like stumbling over and share the gospel with a friend or a coworker or a neighbor, and the power of God at the cross will save them. Not your persuasiveness. Verse 5 says, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, because if it rests in the wisdom of men, you could be persuaded away from Christ. Two things that keep, that I think, two things that keep us grounded that don't persuade us away. One is my reason. Right? I've been persuaded that Jesus is true and right and good, and I should follow him. He's my only hope. But two, if my reason falters for some reason for a moment, I've experienced God. I've experienced his salvation. I've experienced my life change. I've experienced his presence and how his spirit has worked in my life. And so no persuasive speech can pull me away because I know him. So the nature of the gospel and how it spreads is, well, if the message is strange and the followers are insignificant and the leaders are unimpressive, then how are we supposed to do anything? How is this thing supposed to grow? How are we supposed to reach people? How are we supposed to advance the mission of God? That seems impossible. And it's right, it is impossible. It is impossible by human wisdom and human strength. It is impossible. We cannot do it, no matter how good we are at it. It's impossible. But that doesn't mean we can't do it because the gospel spreads not because of the wisdom or power or cunning or creativity of man, but by the power of God and his gospel alone. And that means that God alone gets the credit. The last thing I want you to see is that the power of God alone can save, and that means God alone gets the credit. 1 Corinthians 1.29 says, So that no human being might boast in the presence of God, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Whether we're talking about God saving people through our efforts or our own salvation, we cannot boast in ourselves. We cannot say, yeah, man, I am smarter, I am more spiritual, I am better in any way. Nor can we say that these people got saved because of me or this church or that because I'm such a good communicator or anything like that. No, not in verse 30. It's because of him. Because of God that we are in Christ. And so we do not boast in ourselves or in the messenger. We say, thank you, Jesus, alone. The end of chapter 2, I think, sums this up well. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Salvation is always a work of the Spirit. The natural person, the person apart from the Spirit's work in their life, will always look at the gospel and its messengers as silly, as foolish. They will always mock the gospel. They will see the gospel and think, what a dumb thing these people believe and give their lives to. 
They won't get it. They won't understand. But when the Spirit of God gets a hold of them, opens their eyes to see, like Paul on the road to Damascus, everything changes. And now we see what was once so foolish to us, what was once silly, what was once a joke, is now the power of God to save me. And so we do not need to be divided like the, first, like the Corinthians were, because we know that it is the gospel and the power of God alone that saves people. And we don't need to bring in expensive, famous people to speak. We don't need emotional manipulation. We don't need to trick people into Jesus, because Jesus is quite capable of saving people himself. And we should be grateful that in his wisdom he takes goofs like you and me along for the ride to help, uh, to be a part of this mission that he is saving people. You know, when you trust God, uh, you're able to do, I think, what Jonathan Edwards did. Jonathan Edwards is a Puritan preacher in the 1700s. And he would preach a sermon. And after he, you know, you might have read one of his famous sermons, right, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And at the end of his sermons, he would say, if you want to trust Christ, if you want to follow Christ and give your life to Christ and follow him and all these things, my office will be open on Tuesday. You can come see me then. He took the emotion out of it. He gave people time to count the cost, to make sure they get it. And if they do, God is just as powerful to save them on Sunday as he is on Tuesday. And he will do it. Won't he? And now, we remember and we boast in the foolish message of the power of God in a bloody cross and an empty tomb. And we get to do that this morning by celebrating what we call the Lord's Supper. We eat this meal to remember the salvation is something that only God could accomplish. And he did it while we were sinners. He sent his son to die to save rebels like you and me. And so we're going to pass out this meal here in just a moment as we sing this song. And when you receive these elements, I want you to hold on to them and wait. Don't take them. We're going to take them all together. So we'll sing this song, pass them out, hold on to them. I will come back up here and we will take them together. But let me give you a warning. Listen to this warning. If you do not believe in Jesus, this meal is not for you. If you have not taken hold of Christ, this meal is not for you. Instead, this morning, take hold of Christ, not the thing that points to him. The Bible warns us not to take this in an unworthy manner or, yes, we, or we drink wrath upon our heads. So if you're not a Christian, this isn't for you. If you're here and you have children who maybe have begun to believe and began to talk about that and would say they believe in Jesus, but have really not like really taken that step where, you know, we've baptized them and really brought them into the family of God, just hold off. Maybe they're Christians, maybe they're not. Let's just hold off and, like, let's make sure before we confuse them in taking this meal. This meal is for Christians. It is for those whose sins have been washed clean by Jesus. And a reminder and a celebration that our boast is in a broken body and a bloody cross. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the gospel and for the wisdom of God that is, that is wiser than the wisdom of men. Father, we're thankful that you have given us a message that we can't screw up if we just share it as it is. And that you are powerful to save through the foolishness of what we preach. Through the foolishness of a strange message. Through the foolishness of weak and unimpressive people. Through the foolishness of, uh, of preaching about a dead Jew who come back to life who will one day return to judge the world and set up a new creation. God, we're thankful that you've saved us. 
by that foolish message, which is now to us no longer foolish, but is now the power of God. We're thankful that you opened our eyes to see it as it is, that we would be discerning people by the Spirit. Father, for those in this room who don't know you, I pray that you would save them this morning. And for those of us in this room who have trusted you, Lord, we celebrate and we boast in the cross alone. We thank you, Father. We love you. And it's Christ's name we pray. All people said. Amen.